Let us pray. God of us all, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. One of my uh, favorite stories is about a uh, northerner who was traveling in the south. And I don't think of myself as a northerner. I'm from California. But I married someone from the south. My wife's family are all from Mississippi. And so I know a little something about traveling in the south. Well, this fellow is traveling to the south uh, on business. And uh, one morning he got up and he stopped at a diner for breakfast. And uh, he sat down. A waitress came over and asked him what he wanted. And uh, he ordered pretty much what he always ordered. Uh, eggs, scrambled, uh, bacon, crisp, toast, whole wheat. She brought him some coffee. And then a few minutes later, she brought him his breakfast. And she set a plate in front of him. And, and, and he just looked at it because there was egg, there was bacon, there was toast. But there was something else. And so he, he asked her, ma'am, what is this? And she said, well, well, that's grits. And he said, but I didn't order grits. And she said, hon, you don't order grits. Grits just comes. It just comes. And the same sort of thing happens in this story today from Acts chapter 2. On that Pentecost day long ago, uh, the disciples discovered you don't order the spirit. Spirit just comes. In Acts 2, these first followers of Jesus are, uh, are all in Jerusalem. They're at the temple precinct. They were Jewish, and they were there for the Jewish feast of Pentecost. Pentecost happens 50 days after Passover. It's a celebration of the giving of the law, the giving of the Torah. So they were there because they were Jewish. Uh, they were also there, I suspect, at least in part, because they weren't sure where else to be. I mean, try to imagine what their lives had been like. They were followers of Jesus, and their hopes had been crushed. Their hopes had been crucified. And when Jesus was killed, they, they had to assume that, that the hopes, the promise that he carried with him had ended. And then Easter. And then resurrection. Mind-boggling, world-changing possibilities. Forty days later, he ascended to heaven. He left. He was gone. He promised the spirit would come to them. But how do you catch the wind? So what now? They had lived through an utterly unprecedented event. They are newly hopeful, and they're not sure what's coming next. I have to say, all these centuries later, that feels a little bit familiar to me, and maybe to you too. We've been through an unprecedented event, at least in our lifetime, at least in the last hundred years. We're newly hopeful, um, and we're not quite sure what's next. Well, when we find ourselves in those places in our lives, <clears throat> we tend to stick with what we know, right? So a northerner in the south orders the same thing at breakfast that he always orders. These first followers of Jesus are in the temple precincts getting ready for Pentecost because that's what they'd always done before. And suddenly from heaven, there was a noise like the rush of a violent wind that filled the entire house where they were staying. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. You don't order the Spirit. The Spirit just comes. Beyond the disciples' doubts, beyond their fears, beyond their intentions, beyond their worries, the Spirit 
just comes. The spirit of creation, the spirit that had hovered over the formless void, and called everything, brought into life everything that exists. The spirit of resurrection that breathed into the crucified Christ and raised him to new life. That spirit comes, again, bringing new life, new hope, new purpose, a new future. In Acts, that spirit comes to Peter. Peter, who had wilted under pressure, Peter, who had denied knowing Jesus, Peter had failed his friend, failed his Lord. The spirit comes and bring, and makes Peter newly bold. Later in Acts, the spirit comes to Saul. Saul, who is breathing threats of violence and murder and transforms him into St. Paul, the apostle of peace. The spirit comes to Cornelius, the Gentile who had always been on the outside looking in. and and widens out the circle of the beloved community from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to Portland, even to Texas. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Beyond whatever our doubts, our fears, our failures, our intentions, our worries might be, the creative spirit of God, the healing spirit of God, the justice-seeking, peacemaking spirit of God, the death-defying, the mind boggling spirit of God comes to fuel God's work of making us, of making the world, of making all things whole again. Day after day after day, the spirit just comes. You know, last week I sent out an email that had a quote in for G.K. Chesterton from his book, Orthodoxy. And in that uh, excerpt, uh, G.K. Chesterton imagines the spirit of God every morning saying to the sun, do it again. And every night saying to the moon, do it again. Chesterton imagines the spirit of God making every daisy separately and never getting tired of it. Can you imagine the spirit of God every day saying to the fields, do it again so that all of us have our daily bread. The spirit of God every day creating in each of us the capacity to love our neighbor as ourself and never getting tired. You don't order the spirit. The spirit just comes. It's a little like grits at breakfast in the South. You know, I have to admit, I've, I've never really acquired a taste for grits. Um, the first time it was served to me in the South, I, I, I made what was very nearly a fatal cultural error. I put sugar on grits. You don't put sugar on grits. Not in my mother-in-law's house, you don't. You put butter on grits. You put salt and pepper on grits. You want to serve it in the evening, maybe you serve it with some shrimp and some tasso gravy. That's how you do it. So to be honest, most of the time if grits is served, I just push it off to the side. Um, the thing is, we can push the spirit off to the side, too. We can, as, as Paul writes in uh, 1 Thessalonians, we can quench the spirit. We can quench the spirit in our own lives, right? Yep, our plates are full of a lot of other things. Uh, we can get busy. We can get distracted from what God means to do in us, through us. Um, other times, we know what we're doing. We know it's untruthful. We know it's hurtful. We know it's sinful. We do it anyway. God is love. But the thing about love is we can always refuse it. We can refuse to love. We can refuse to be loved. That's what the Bible calls sin. That's how we quench the spirit. And we can do it in our personal lives. We can also do it in our public lives, too. We can act collectively in ways that undermine what God needs to do in the world. The 
spirit of God is, is the breath of God. And so when Eric Garner, held by a police officer in a chokehold, says, I can't breathe. When George Floyd, under the knee of a police officer, says, I can't breathe. When more than 70 people, according to the New York Times, held in police custody, die in police custody, saying, I can't breathe. There's something in that system that's quenching spirit. Now, I'm sure many police officers, I'm sure most police officers are doing their job the best they can. They're doing it as well as they can. But there's something in that system that's stopping what the spirit needs to do. And in the same way, we're part of an economic system that's starting to make the planet unlivable. That's already, in fact, the case for some people in some places. We're part of a political system which people in the United States seem to live on different planets. There's lots of ways that we undermine what the spirit of God, the spirit of the risen Christ has come to do. So, so we who hear this story, we who believe that the spirit is at work, and we who hope for the beloved community that Jesus promised, how do we become part of, of, of what the creative, redemptive spirit means to do uh, in the world. Well, in the book of Acts, right at the beginning, in, in chapter one, um, Jesus tells his followers, tells his disciples to wait. Now, I might have expected something more proactive. We might have expected something more, you know, useful. Might have expected them to get organized, to gather their resources, maybe write a mission statement, maybe set some, uh, some achievable goals. I mean, when there was so much that's so wrong, when there was so much to do, we often feel a strong sense of urgency, right? I mean, I got to get out there. I got to do something. And we should feel a sense of urgency because there is so much to do. But I also find with myself, and I'm pretty sure it's true for not just me, when I get impatient, I get frustrated, I get overwhelmed, I get worn out, I start to get snappy. That's when I start to bark at people. Um, I get cynical. I get apathetic. And even more, when we get impatient, oftentimes our means don't match the end. Oftentimes the ways that we do things don't match up with what we're trying to do. And that's never going to get us where the spirit means to take us. And so Jesus tells the disciples to wait, to wait for the spirit. And in telling them to wait for the spirit, Jesus makes clear that the things that need to be done in the world can't be done by us on our own. Our efforts alone, our organizing alone, our programs alone aren't going to be enough. And there are times that I get tired, I get frustrated, I get pessimistic. If you read this story, that is not surprising. Loving our neighbors is hard enough. Loving our enemies, that's going to take more than we got within us on our own. Sustaining the work of doing justice in ways that are merciful that takes more than we can generate internally on our own. The scholastics, who you know, theologians in the Middle Age, they had a saying. I'm not going to repeat it in Latin because I studied Latin, but it translates roughly as to be properly human, you must go beyond the merely human. To be properly human, you must go beyond the merely human. To live the lives for which we were created, to take on the work to which we've been called requires it requires the strength and the wisdom and the courage and the peace and the love and the patience of the spirit. So wait, pray, 
Because that's how we're present. That's how we're open and attentive and receptive and responsive to the spirit. Reminds me of, of a story. It's a story that I think comes from the rabbinic tradition. A disciple goes running to an elder and says, where shall I look for wisdom? And the elder says, here. And the disciple sort of looking at the clock says, well, when will it happen? And the elder replies, it's happening right now. And the disciple waits for a moment and then starts to sort of drum his fingers impatiently. and says, well, then why don't I experience it? The elder says, because you do not look. Well, what should I look for? Nothing. Just look. And, you know, by now the disciples get pretty exasperated. He says, but must I look in a special way? No. The ordinary way is, the ordinary way is fine. That, the disciple says, but I, but I am looking in the ordinary way. And the elder says, no. To look, you have to be here. Now, you're mostly someplace else. It's easy to find ourselves in a lot of other places. There's so many other things that demand our attention. So how does the Spirit get hold of us? How does the Spirit breathe life into us? How does the holy wind blow through us? You don't have to listen in a special way. You don't have to look in a special place. You only have to be present with God as much as you can. And trust that the Spirit just comes. And when the Spirit did come on that Pentecost day, when the Spirit came like wind, when the Spirit came like fire, when the Spirit had breathed new life into these first followers, they went out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. They went out to the ends of the earth. They went out bearing witness to the good news of God's love, the good news of God's mercy, of God's healing and reconciling power. Have you ever heard someone described as, as a breath of fresh air? You know, maybe it's a new teacher, maybe it's a new neighbor, maybe it's a new coworker, uh, maybe it's a new pastor. Wow, what a breath of fresh air. See, I think that's what we're called to be. In John, you know, the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus breathed on the disciples. We trust that the spirit of Jesus continues to invigorate us with the very breath of God. And then we are sent out to be a breath of fresh air, to be a breath of fresh compassion, a breath, a breath of fresh mercy breath of fresh kindness and courage, breath of fresh joy, a breath of fresh hope, breath of fresh peace. You know, there's a poem by Mary Oliver, it's titled Wage Peace, and it begins with the line, wage peace with your breath. Having been invigorated by the breath, by the Spirit of God, we're sent out to be part of the creative, redemptive work of the Spirit of God. So wage peace with your breath. She goes on, Breathe in firemen and rubble. Breathe out whole buildings and flocks of red-winged blackbirds. Breathe in terrorists and breathe out sleeping children and freshly mown fields. Breathe in confusion and breathe out maple trees. Breathe in the fallen and breathe out lifelong friendships intact. That's what we trust can happen when the Spirit comes, when we let the Spirit breathe new life into us. And so in this coming week, in all of the places that you're going to find yourself, be a breath of fresh air. Breathe in the spirit and then breathe out love and joy and peace. Breathe out patience and kindness and generosity. Breathe out faithfulness and gentleness. Breathe out hope. Breathe out courage. 
breathe out justice. May the spirit of God, the spirit of creation, the spirit of resurrection, the spirit of Easter work in us and through us to make all things new. Maybe so. Amen.